All right, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 19 before we pray. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it this evening, to learn of your son Jesus and of the power that is present in the gospel message, that he died for our sins, rose again so that we can have life. We praise you for the account of the life of Saul, whom we know as Paul, whose life you turned around completely by the power of your spirit. Father, we pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds that we would believe you, that you are that powerful, that you can change even the hardest heart. So as we study, help us to understand your word. Pray, remove our fear, our doubt, our worry and anxiety and all of these distractions that would keep us from knowing you and then empower our hands, our feet and our bodies for your service. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever had one of those friends who just is cynical about the concept of romance. Maybe a person who just hates Valentine's Day, thinks it's all a big Hallmark scam, Cupid's some sort of demon, right? This is the person that uh, they just walk through their life hating romance, don't like romantic comedies, and it may be because they experienced pain in their past uh, because of a previous relationship. It may be just because they haven't had great luck with the opposite sex, and so uh, they are skeptical, they are cynical, and maybe you've known a person like that. Maybe you are that person. Uh, Maybe you're sitting in here this evening and you say, yeah, that's me, all right? When Valentine's Day comes around, I want to hibernate for several months until it's over, right? Maybe you've known a person like that, though, who has been transformed, 
right, who has been changed, so to speak, that uh, all of a sudden this person who hates romance meets somebody and then it's like their entire perspective on life changes. I had a friend like this in college that he had a period of time where he had bad luck with the ladies and uh, he got kind of bitter and he developed this uh, little phrase that he always liked to say that was, uh, he would say, women are evil. And as you can imagine, that didn't help him uh, with his problem with the ladies. It didn't help him get more dates or anything like that. But then uh, one day he walked into one of his classes and he met a young lady who shared many of his interests, whom he found attractive, and he began dating her. And all of a sudden his whole life was different. And so he comes home from school and it's like, man, the sky is so blue and the flowers are just so beautiful and I love the daisies. You know, and everything has changed in his life. And occasionally this old person would still slip out and he would say something like, yeah, women are evil. And uh, his girlfriend would go, no, don't, just don't say that. And he'd go, I'm sorry, sweetie. You know, and he would kind of back off of it. You know, and it was just like, this was a different man. Uh, my guess is that all of you have seen that kind of transformation in somebody's life. And all of us, perhaps, go through periods of time where something enters into our life and it changes the way we think, changes the way we talk, the way we act. Maybe it is a romance. Maybe it is you come to college and suddenly you're different in a lot of ways because you're independent from your parents. When you graduate college, you may experience dramatic change as you enter into a career. Or one day when you get married and have kids, all of these changes will happen in your life. And the odds are you won't be the same person in many ways 15 years from now as you are today. Because change is a part of life. And yet, nothing, as we look at the scripture, nothing creates the type of dramatic and lasting change as when a person meets Jesus Christ. And as you read the book of Acts, that's one of the things that is most stunning about the book of Acts is as the spirit moves into people's hearts, as people meet Jesus, all of a sudden they're walking one way and they turn around 180 degrees and go the other direction. And the life of Saul is a classic example of this and probably the preeminent example of this in the Bible. Saul is a man who hates Jesus when we first meet him. He hates Christians and he wants to destroy them. Literally, his mission in life is to destroy the church. And yet he encounters Jesus Christ and everything changes for him. And he turns 180 degrees around. And sometimes I read a passage like this and I'm frankly tempted to be a little skeptical. Can God really do that? Could this really have happened? Could somebody really be that dramatically changed overnight? And so as you read this kind of passage, I think the, the question for us to ask is, do you and I really believe that God is that powerful? Do you really believe that the gospel has that kind of power? Think about the people that you know that you would say, man, that person is so far from God. Maybe it's a family member that mocks your faith. Maybe it's a friend in the dorm. Maybe it's somebody in a class. Maybe it is just an acquaintance you have that you say, that person is living far away from God. That person would never come to know Jesus. I don't see any way that that person could be transformed. And yet, as you look at the scripture, the life of Saul testifies to the fact that the gospel is that powerful. And the Spirit of God still works. Jesus is still alive. And the gospel is still true. And so as we look at this passage, I think the challenge for us, I think the exhortation for us is to look within us and say, do I really really trust on a day-to-day basis that God is that powerful? And then am I willing 
to serve him by proclaiming the gospel, even if it seems like a hopeless cause? Do I really believe that the spirit of God is powerful enough even to change me? Even though I am sinful, even though there seem to be sins in my life and your life that we go, man, this is very difficult to overcome. Is the spirit of God powerful enough because of what Jesus did to change me and turn me around in a different direction? Do I really believe that? And do I pray for that? The life of Saul illustrates it. What Jesus provides when he enters into a person's life. All right, so we're going to look at that. What does Jesus provide and how do we respond? The first thing we see in the life of Paul is that Jesus provides a new perspective. Look again at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but arise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. All right, we begin in chapter nine and here we have this guy Saul and it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the church. Now it helps to know a little background. We've seen Saul once before. If you were with us two weeks ago when we talked about the martyrdom of Stephen, the very first martyr in the history of the church, while the council, the Sanhedrin is stoning Stephen at the end of chapter seven, it says while they're stoning him, they were laying their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, the reason they're doing that is as they would wear an outer garment and then they would wear one or two, perhaps inner garments, undergarments underneath this outer coat. And uh, when you pick up a stone to throw it, the coat is long and that coat's going to get in the way, right? So it's hard to stone someone while you're wearing your heavy coat. So they would take off the coat and they would lay them down. So what Saul is doing, Saul is a young up and comer in the Jewish society and he stands there and he keeps their coats. And it says he heartily approved of what they were doing. Because the Sanhedrin had condemned Stephen because they believed Stephen to be a blasphemer. They believed Stephen to be somebody who was threatening the law. And these are men and women who have built their lives around following the Old Testament law. And you remember Stephen comes out and he says, we will worship God in spirit now, no longer in the temple because Jesus made a once for all sacrifice. You don't have to sacrifice bulls and goats anymore. This temple is unnecessary. That was a threat to the established religious order. Stephen also seems to be proclaiming that Jesus has fulfilled the law. That through Jesus Christ, now the Old Testament law itself, we don't follow it in the same way. But instead we follow the Spirit. That's a threat to the established religious order. And so they put Stephen to death and it says Saul is standing there approving it. And then what happens after Stephen dies, Saul is this guy in chapter eight, you see him, it says that Saul went church to church. He went from house church to house church. He knocked on the doors and he dragged people out and arrested them 
to have them executed. So he ramps up the persecution and his goal is to destroy the church. And now here in chapter nine, it says he's breathing threats and murder against the church. And what he does, there are some people who have escaped to Damascus from Jerusalem. So as Saul is going from house to house and persecuting the church, some of the Christians flee Jerusalem. They go up to Damascus, which is in the northern part of Israel. Well, Saul follows them up there. He goes to the high priest and he gets letters of extradition to go all the way up to Damascus to chase these people down and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to face justice. Now you look at that and you go, why is this guy so mean? To paraphrase Taylor Swift, right? Why in the world is he so mean? Okay, you have to get into the background of who he is a little bit. Who is this guy? He talks in Philippians 3 about who he was prior to knowing Jesus Christ. Look at this. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right, Saul is a man, he grows up in a Jewish home. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's born to Hebrew parents. Even though he lives in Tarsus, which isn't in Israel, it's in Asia Minor, his parents apparently spoke Jewish They maintained their ancestral traditions. They taught Saul from a young age to follow the law and to keep pure. He becomes a Pharisee. Pharisee comes from a word that means pure ones. And the Pharisees were the separatists in a sense, in terms of purity of that day. They were the ones that they said, we must follow the law to the extent that they built 613 commands based on the Old Testament law. And they said, you have to fulfill all of these. And they were extremely focused on the law. Jesus rails against the Pharisees a lot. He taught, we find in Acts 22, or he studied under a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the preeminent teachers among the Pharisees. So this guy Saul is a Pharisee among Pharisees. He persecutes the church. Why? Because he believes that they are blasphemers. He believes that they are violating the law. He believes that they are denigrating Moses in the temple. And so he believes it is his religious duty to kill them for blasphemy. That's who this guy is. That's his whole mindset. So he can't even fathom that Jesus Christ could really be the Messiah. He can't even get it into his head. That is his mindset from the beginning of his life to the day we see him here in chapter nine. I was thinking this week, one of the books that we read to my kids periodically is the Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham. Some of you have read this book. And if you know the story of the book, at the beginning, the main character, his name we never get, but he has hatred in his heart, right? His hatred is for who? Sam I am, right? The very first thing you hear him say is, Sam I am, Sam I am, I do not like that Sam I am, right? Right away, he doesn't like him. Why? Because Sam I am wants him to do what? Eat green eggs and ham. And he won't eat them. He hates them. He doesn't like them, even though he's never tried them. And as you go through, you find all kinds of variations on Sam I am trying to get him to eat them in a box with a fox in a house with a mouse, right? Over here, over there, everywhere, you know, and he won't do it, right? Now, that is because, why? He has a preconceived notion. I hate them. They're green. Now, when you get to the end of the book, and I hope I'm not giving this away too much for you guys, uh, all of this changes, right? His mindset changes because he experiences it. Well, here in chapter 9, what we have is Saul, who has a presupposition that Jesus cannot be of God, because Jesus challenged the way they understood the law. And he said, no, you worship God now because of my death and resurrection through the power of the Spirit. 
and the law is written on your hearts and you don't need a sacrificial system anymore. And so Saul can't even fathom that. All right, so what we see then is, is what happens is he's walking to Damascus to persecute these men and women. All of a sudden, there's a flashing light. He literally is floored. He's down on the ground. He cannot see. And uh, he hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he recognizes this immediately as a divine vision. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, that must have been a terrifying moment for Saul. Because you've been persecuting the church of God. And all of a sudden, here's this Jesus. He appears to you in a blinding vision from heaven. You're down on the ground, extremely vulnerable. And he says, I'm the one you're persecuting. And if I were Saul, I would think I'm about to die. That's it. But Jesus says, get up. Go into the city. Go to Damascus. And wait further instructions. So he gets up, and it's amazing. He cannot see still. For three days, he can't see. They have to lead him by the hand. His eyes are open, it says, but he can't see anything. They lead him by the hand into Damascus. And then for three days, he doesn't eat or drink, apparently because he's in such shock. This is a radical transformation for this man. He has made a 180-degree turn in his perspective about Jesus. This is not a normal everyday occurrence in someone's life. This is a person whose entire worldview has changed overnight. Imagine if you walked into Starbucks tomorrow and you saw Bill Gates on a Mac. And he goes, nah, yeah, these are really better. I've decided, okay? That'd be crazy, right? And in fact, this change in the life of Saul is so dramatic that there are some commenters on the text, some who don't believe in the inerrancy of the scripture that go, that cannot have really happened. Maybe what happened is he had an epileptic seizure or uh, he had a stroke or he just went crazy because it's so dramatic. And yet none of those explanations explain the following 30 years in which this man wrote about the gospel with unbelievable lucidity, preached it all over the known world, because he went from believing that Christians should be killed, that Jesus is a blasphemer, to believing that Jesus is the Son of God. His perspective changes that radically. Do you believe that the gospel is that powerful? That even a man or a woman who is far away from God, who is hostile to the truth, can be transformed. Most of us did not experience conversions as dramatic as Saul. And yet I have throughout my life known men and women who were headed away from Jesus Christ and hostile to him. People that I thought, that guy is never going to know Jesus. I can think of one friend of mine from high school that was just the wildest guy that I knew. And he was hostile to the gospel. He wouldn't talk about it. And yet at some point, our senior year in high school, Jesus got a hold of his life. For the last 20 years, this guy's been walking with the Lord. The gospel is powerful to transform lives. Do we believe that? Will we proclaim it, believing that through the message of Jesus' death and resurrection and through the Spirit's power, he really can change people? Jesus is still alive. The Spirit is still active. And so it provides Paul. Jesus gives Paul an entirely new perspective. He also gives Paul an entirely new identity. Look at verses 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, so God appears to Ananias and says, hey, you need to go talk to this Saul guy uh, because he has seen a vision of me and he's been praying and uh, I've told him that you're gonna come see him. And what, what I love is Ananias' response. He goes, hold on just a second. Um, let me remind you of who this guy is. Uh, this is not a nice man, God. This guy, Saul, has come here to persecute us. Uh, I'm just going to fill you in a little bit on who he is. He went and he got letters from the high priest, and he has authority from the high priest to come here and kill us, and you're sending me to my death. No, thank you. And God replies to Ananias, you go, because I have made him my chosen instrument to the Gentiles, to the Israels, to stand before kings, to bear my name and to spread my message all around the world. And so go. And so Ananias does. And he delivers this message to Saul. And the scales fall off his eyes and then he stands up, he eats, and he is strengthened to do the task God has called him to do. But Ananias has a hard time because in his mind, Saul is identified with death, with sin, with persecution and hatred. And God says, nope. I've redeployed him. He has a new identity. Now he's identified with Jesus Christ. I don't know if you have ever wanted to construct a new identity for yourself, right? Uh, Maybe you wanted to be like Jason Bourne or something like that and have a secret identity. Uh, It may have been simpler than that. Maybe when you came to college, you just kind of thought, I want to be somebody other than who I was in high school. Maybe in high school, you were known as a partier and you come here and you say, I want to be known as a studier. Maybe it was the opposite. You're like, I was known as the brainy kid and I want to be known as the social kid here. And so you try to transform the way that you act, the way that you speak and you make changes. I actually had a friend my freshman year in college and this is very true. His name was Matt. And all of a sudden toward the end of our freshman year, I saw him in the dorm one day and I walked up and I said, hey, Matt, how's it going? And he said, no, my name is Dave. All right. And And I'm not making this up. All of a sudden, he went from wanting to be called Matt to being called Dave. He changed the color of his hair. He got some piercings to kind of mark him out differently, began acting differently. And he went by Dave because he wanted to construct a new identity for himself that badly. Now, it was all external, right? I can call you Dave, but you're still internally the same person, aren't you? The same hurts, the same fears, the same patterns of behavior. But what happens to Saul is much deeper than that. Later in the book, he is called Paul, and I think the name change is just to mark out these two separate times in his life. There's no particular significant meaning behind these words Saul or Paul that is distinct, 
But the idea is that God has made him somebody new and he is now identified with Jesus Christ rather than identified with who he used to be. And the only thing that can make that kind of transformation is the spirit of God. And so that's why later on, as Paul writes, you have verses like 2 Corinthians five seventeen, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Because that's what happened to him. As you look at Romans chapter 6, he says, I've been buried. If you know Jesus, you've been buried with him. You're dead to sin. And you've been made alive to God. And in Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He's now identified with Jesus Christ. This is not a change in hairstyle. This is not moving to a new town and trying to find new friends. This is a absolutely new identification. And again, that's the power of the gospel. Not only can it transform hardened hearts, but it can change who we are. And as we begin to grasp what God has done in Jesus Christ and allow the Spirit to transform us, then then my prayer is that we will move out and recognize that he can do that for others as well. That there is unbelievable transformative power through Jesus Christ. And it may be you're here this evening, and you identify yourself with some particular sin. Maybe you identify yourself as a person who is angry or lustful or prideful, and you say, that's, that's what marks me out. Maybe you identify yourself with something that's happened to you in the past, what somebody did to you. Uh, maybe you identify yourself with certain groups of people, good or bad, and you take pride in that or you don't take pride in that. And the message as we look at the life of Saul is if you know Jesus Christ, you are identified with him. His spirit lives in you. And so you have the opportunity and the capacity to submit to him, to change the way you think, to change the way you act, because now you are one of his. You are his child, and that is foundationally where your identification is found. Maybe you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus Christ. And you identify yourself with some aspect of the world around us or you have a personal identity you've constructed. And it may be you believe you really never could be different from the way you are. And if you don't know him this evening, the message for you is this, that Jesus Christ died in your place to take away the sin that you have committed. To take upon himself the death that you have earned because by our sin we've earned God's punishment and then he rose again. He defeated death and sin. He offers to you eternal life as a free gift if you will believe. And then when you do, the spirit of God enters into your heart and paves the way for you to be able to be transformed. If you've ever wanted to be new and fresh and clean and identified with something pure and wonderful, that's found only in Jesus. And that's what Saul finds. God gives him a new name, a new identity. And then he gives him a new mission. Verses 19 through 31. He says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit in multiplied. See what's going on. All of a sudden, Paul, having met Jesus Christ, his whole mission in life changes. And I love this because why was he going to Damascus in the first place? You remember? He's going there on a mission to kill all the Christians who are there. But Jesus meets him on the road and now he has a new mission. He stands there in the synagogue at Damascus and he proclaims, it says he proves that Jesus is the son of God. He goes back to the Old Testament, and this is great because this is all of a sudden where Saul's background as a Pharisee suddenly comes in handy because he knows the law. He knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And he takes that Old Testament and he says, look, it all points to Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates who Jesus is. And as you walk through the rest of the book of Acts, this is Paul's distinct pattern. He goes into the synagogue. He takes the Old Testament. He explains who Jesus is. If they reject him in the synagogue, he goes out and he speaks to the Gentiles to explain who Jesus is. And every town he goes to, he's on this mission. And it's a completely transformed type of mission. And as you read here from Acts 9, what's astounding is this man who was going to persecute the church now is willing to experience persecution. And so the Jews and the Hellenists are seeking to kill him. And eventually, as you look at the life of Paul, you know, he was eventually killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. This is a 180 degree transformation, not only in his perspective and in his identity, but in his mission for his life. Because now he says, I see the mission of my life to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to tell others about him because he has changed me. I want the same to be true of others. I want to extend this free gift of the gospel to others. F.F. Bruce, a Bible scholar, put it this way, no single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. In other words, apart from the life of Jesus itself, there's nothing that marks the history of the church like the conversion of Paul and his commissioning to go be an apostle and share the gospel because through him, not only did the church grow and spread all throughout the known world, but we have most of our New Testament because of this man. And so to this day, God transformed this guy to the extent that we still grow and benefit from his life. That is the transformation created by the power of the Spirit because of what Jesus has done. Look at this map. This just shows you Paul's third missionary journey later on in his life. He went back to some of the spots that he had gone on his first two missionary journeys. Uh, Over here in Asia Minor, up in Iconium. He had been to Lystra and Derbe already. He had been up to Antioch and Phrygia. He had been to all of these places. He comes over to Troas, and now he goes all the way up into Macedonia, where Philippi, Thessalonica is. He tries to go to Spain, but he doesn't make it that far, but he comes back down into Athens, right? And it's in Athens that they're shipwrecked. Eventually, he ends up in trial and in jail in Rome. All right, but look at this. Look at where this guy goes. He starts way over in Tarsus in Asia Minor and because of his encounter with Jesus, he covers most of the known world throughout his life to share the gospel. He never stays in a permanent home. 
He's always persecuted. He's chased around the globe, put in jail, endures shipwreck. He's stoned and eventually beheaded because of his encounter with Jesus Christ. He gets a vision of the love of Jesus Christ. And because he loves him, this guy's wrecked. He's never the same. When I was in college, I've talked, I talked earlier this evening about the transformation that romance can make in your life. When I was in college, I lived in this one apartment or a house with a few guys, I should say. And uh, this place was just a mess. I mean, it just was gross. Five, six guys living in there. And it just, it got nastier and nastier. I lived there for a summer. And as the summer went on, it just increasingly became the type of place that I didn't really want to be at. And everybody was responsible. I was a part of the problem, not often a part of the solution. But I mean, you know, the dishes would pile up and the kitchen got gross and the tile got disgusting and we never vacuumed. And after a while, uh, mice actually moved in and uh, began to cohabit with us in this place. And it was just disgusting. And uh, I never had the motivation to really try to clean it up because there were four or five other guys that were living there and they didn't have the motivation. And so one person couldn't clean for everybody. But there was this one afternoon, I was sitting in this place and just maybe kind of dwelling upon the filth that we were living in and uh, I got a phone call and on the other end of the line was this young lady that I was interested in and she said hey can I come over and talk for a few minutes and in my head I thought please don't come to this place right this place is just awful I don't want anybody in here but I said sure come on over and then I got off the phone and I looked at one of my other roommates who was there and I said we have 25 minutes to make this place look good right and we stood up and I cleaned like I've never cleaned before or since Right? And by the time she got over there, it was not clean per se, but it wasn't disgusting like it had been before she called. Now, what gave me that fire to clean? This person that I cared about. What gives Saul the fire to pick up his life, travel all over the world, share the gospel, experience all of this pain and persecution? It's his vision of Jesus Christ, whom he loves. The love of Jesus Christ enters his heart and his mind and changes him and changes his mission. As you look at some of his writings later on in life, it's interesting to see how he talks about the sufferings he endures. Look at Colossians 1, for example. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. In other words, he says, look, I suffer for the gospel, but I rejoice because God has tasked me to continue to suffer on behalf of Jesus Christ. And as I do that, the gospel goes forth. And how many times here? Three times he says, we want to teach every man. We want to present every man complete in Christ. We admonish every man. I want every person to know this. And so he travels throughout the world, I think, believing I'll do this until Jesus comes back or until I die. And when he gets to the end of his life, famous passage, 2 Timothy, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
And he hands that baton off to Timothy. And he says, you take this message. Carry this mission. And make disciples. I wonder when you think about the plan for your life, as you ponder your career, as you ponder maybe future spouse, as you think about where you're going to live, do you plan in a way that allows God to grab hold of your life and cast vision? In other words, is your grand defining mission for your life how you're going to make yourself happy, wealthy, rich, prestigious? Or is your grand mission for your life to say, I want the world to know about Jesus Christ. And I want to know what is my little part in that. Whatever your career is, wherever you live, whomever you marry, you say, I want to have a part in making disciples because the gospel is that powerful to transform lives, to bring men and women to a place where they're right with God and to give them eternal life. And so whatever I do, I want to be a disciple maker, a person who reflects Jesus Christ and tells others about him. Is that your mission for your life? As the band comes back up in a moment to uh, lead us in a few songs, or as Hunter, I guess there's no band, really, it's just Hunter, yeah. As Hunter comes back up here in a second, uh, just as we're singing, as we're worshiping, uh, continue to process this. Do I really believe in the power of Jesus Christ, in the power of his word, in the power of his spirit, to change lives, to change my life, to change the lives of those around me? And will I dedicate myself to the mission of sharing that Jesus died and rose again so we can have eternal life, so we can know him, and so we can reflect him? And will we entrust ourselves to him and our lives to him to see the amazing ways that he'll work through us? pray with me. Father, we praise you because of your love expressed to us through your son, Jesus Christ, that his love for us is beyond compare and beyond understanding. And yet we know that the reason we are here, the reason we can praise you, the reason we can be confident that we have eternal life is because of the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Father, we pray that we would submit our hearts, our lives, our plans to you I pray that we would proclaim the message that Jesus has died and risen again. And I pray by the power of your spirit, you would use that message to change our lives as well as the lives of those we know. Make us faithful and effective in your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.